this uh, conference, in which we uh, made a unique each and every one of us uh, to impact to our communities. And I think more of not uh, Greece here this uh, short time that we need to be uh, together. And I do thank uh, our beloved father, his grace, Bishop Yusuf, who's a great role model to everyone, not only in the Southern Diocese, but throughout North America and, and beyond, throughout the entire lands of migration. And uh, I thank my fathers for their kindness and their love. They have met me. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, I look forward to spend some quality time with you uh, in our upcoming four sessions that I'm going to be speaking. Your Grace is going to be speaking about one session. So you have a total of five sessions, four today and only one tomorrow. So that's why I said last night, you're going to die tomorrow. <laughs> Here all these talks. By the end of it, you're just going to be so dizzy and you won't remember it. Here we go, anyways. Uh, usually, I uh, like to start by something light and uh, and hopefully a little bit funny just to get us in, in the mood. I know just had beans for breakfast, so we might be a little bit uh, heavy, uh, but hopefully we'll try our best to keep you as uh, awake and entertained as I possibly can. Can promise, feel free to take a nap in the middle of the talk. I don't get offended in any way. I love it is, and <laughs> there's no way. Every culture uh, deals with uh, marriage in a different way. And um, there are some cultures back in the day used to have matchmakers. Other cultures now, recent days, uh, you go uh, online, dating sites. Uh, There's some uh, cultures that are still old school. And uh, basically, when they want to get married or they want their children to get married, they uh, publish an ad in the newspaper, in the local newspaper, about their own availability and uh, the different things that make them stand out uh, from other people, or the things that parents are so proud about their children that they uh, really want to propagate marriage for, for their children. So um, these are actual ads that appeared on newspapers. I picked a few of them, and uh, I wanted to share with you just to give us in the mood of talking about relationships. Here's the first one. It says, Wanted Bride for Bahubali. 36-year-old warrior and military leader from a respectable nomad family. He's 6'2", so he's tall, extremely well-built, and will help with heavy household chores. <laughs> he also climbs mountains whenever he spots something and did it 15 years. So, and if you really want a strong man that's able to help with household chores, that's the man for me. Here's one that I thought about of the innocent divorcee. Wanted, good-looking, educated, homely girl. Aged about 32 years old from respectful business family. For a good-looking North Indian Agrawal boy, he's a graduate, he's issueless, and he's, a, and he's an innocent divorcee. I promise it wasn't his fault. <laughs> his 
birthday is in December 67 and he's only 5 feet and 4 inches. <laughs> well settled in family business and chill now. Here's an ad for a good young lady except she can't wear any jeans outside the house. I want a girl with no rings if she wants. She can wear jeans inside the house, but while stepping out of the house, she should give respect to our caste. What? So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to wear jeans outside, that's not the man for you. This could have been your colleague at uh, school or in college, the Sunni Muslim. Parents invite correspondents for their beautiful U.S.-born daughter. You see, that's, that's an advantage. So if you have an American passport, that's an advantage. So 27, she's an electrical engineer. She's fair, she's slim, she's 5 feet 6 inches, and wears hijab from professional Indian Pakistani origin. So not just any hijab, it's a professional hijab. So even though she's born in America, yet she hasn't forgotten her age. This one I call the gold digger. He's 20 years old, honest, alone, educated, jobless, very poor, male, looking for a very rich bride. I like this. very From any country, so it doesn't discriminate. Who would be able to help financially? She could be divorced, she could be a widow, or a disabled. Also welcome, so as long as, as long as you have money, she doesn't care the name. I call this matrimony and love. Why marry just one son if you can marry all of them at the same time? So, three boys. You can pay, take your pick. The first one is 29 years old, he's only 5'4". The second one is 25, he's 5'6". And then the third one is 22, might as well. Put it on hat, just might as well marry all three of them. He's 5'5". Five, five. All graduates, separate businesses, own houses, seek a beautiful educated girl, and then you can... All of them? <laughs> they want to speak <laughs> <laughs> this is the worst one. I call it no words, it's curable. So sincere, spiritual, caring, life partner or companion for 32 years, handsome, affectionate, caring boy. Sexually unfit. <laughs> due to stress of due to stress of previous divorce, but it's curable. So, only son's salary, you know, throughout them. I mean, if you don't mind, then. This one I call Ebenezer Scrooge. He's handsome, handsome, fitness conscious widower. He's 48 years old and is a meter and 68 centimeters. He, don't worry, even though he's like 47, but he looks only 40, so <laughs> he looks much younger than what he actually is. He's a multi-millionaire, settled business and Mumbai seeks affair, so someone with like light skin, beautiful, cultured, life partner, 
They're doing brackets, no dowry. <laughs> if you're in it for the money, don't even apply. Right? He's a multi-millionaire at least. He doesn't want to pay any money for the lady. So no gifts, no nothing. Just you can enjoy life with a multi-millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is the grand finale now. The grand finale, right? I keep this one for last. The bitter pair. 29, Hindu, 62. Pair and good looking, well built. Bachelor of Education is an MBA graduate. Currently working as a general manager in a renowned international bank. Professionally well settled in Chicago and earning quite a lot, owns a house. All this and my stupid son has got neither the charm nor the smartness to figure out a woman and convince her to marry him. <laughs> and he expects me to find a suitable, God knows what that means, whom he will be spending a good part of his future with. Any good-looking, matured, and understanding girl who also hasn't been successful in winning a guy's heart, please contact us with your photoshopped... <laughs> with your photoshopped portrait, looks like my son knows to judge you for above qualities by looking at it. Please feel free to ruin your life. Please <laughs> feel free to ruin your life by marrying a total what stranger. <laughs> and don't you dare to call this holy matrimony because it ain't. <laughs> Which one is your favorite ad? <laughs> something of the past and how it is 
were built in today's culture. Anyhow, the idea here is that to connect two things together, the scripture as the foundation for our teaching, as well as the sayings of the early church, theologians, fathers, and mothers, the patristic era, as well as making things practical and relevant, relevant for today's culture. So uh, just a quick overview of this presentation. Um, the first talk is going to follow the story of Isaac and Rebecca. And uh, we're gonna speak about seven different challenges that today's culture um, are, are facing, uh, being inspired from the story of Isaac and, and Rebecca. And uh, we're gonna speak about the good old days and understanding the network. Secondly, education and career discerning God's will, technology and social media, freedom and sexual liberation, cultural adaptation, and finally, postmodernism. And uh, we will conclude by turning these challenges into opportunities and understanding how we can apply um, a better view about these challenges and not feel that you know walls are there to prevent us from achieving and realizing God's will for our own relationships but rather these are all opportunities for us to understand and to pursue uh, God's will for our lives. Let's uh, begin by uh, reminding ourselves with the story of Isaac and Rebecca. You may recall that uh, Abraham had left, uh, lived in Mesopotamia uh, in a place uh, called Ur of the Chaldees, and out of there God called him to leave his country and his people and to go to a land in which he will show him. After a long journey and many experiences with, with God, he finally arrived at this land and called Canaan. And this was uh, the promised land for him and for his descendants. Now came the time for his son to be married. And uh, all the Canaanites were of the nations. They were worshiping other gods or, or idols. And he wanted to find a bride for uh, his son from his own land so that he would be uh, connected with the, the, the people there and uh, that they would worship the same God and uh, that woman would be someone that he might be related to, someone that his son Isaac would connect with. So he brought his uh, servant and he uh, asked him to go uh, up to uh, all of the Chaldeans, up to Mesopotamia, back again, and uh, to find for his son a wife there. Now it wasn't an easy task under any circumstance because he would just show up to this land. He doesn't know anyone and uh, he uh, would just basically be looking around and speaking with people. Where am I going to find a beautiful bride for um, this master whose name is, is Isaac? So I told him, what if I can't find a bride? And even if I find one, will she be willing to come and move back with me to, to Canaan? So Abraham basically just told him, do your best. And if you, if it's God's will, and I know that God will send his angels before you uh, to show you who he has in mind for my son Isaac. And then if you don't find a wife or she's not willing to move back with you, uh, then you are released of this oath that you have taken with him. Uh, so let's begin uh, the story here in, in Genesis 24, 1 to 4. And the story starts with, now Abraham was old, well advanced in age. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, 
the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now, uh, this is the story of the good old days where, uh, not just very old days, but I uh, mean until a generation ago, maybe the generation of, of our parents, uh, where people needed to marry from the network. The network means that it's someone that you are related to, you are connected to, or at least someone that you can um, ask about. Like when we bring home someone who's a complete stranger, and uh, the parents uh, struggle, and they say, well, we don't know who that person is. He could be a criminal, could be uh, a creepy person. He could, he's unknown to us. We don't know his parents. We don't know who to ask about, because quite often you see that parents want to uh, check on that person. Quite often uh, we, we receive a call, let's say, from someone from out of town, because the priest is usually that common person who knows uh, the congregation. They say, oh, I want to check up on this person because it's like a reference check. It's almost like uh, a job application and you have to call the references and then you say, oh, the person is a member of your congregation and um, you know, how is he is, uh, proposing or he wants to propose to my daughter and uh, I need to get like a reference check and I say, sorry, my beautiful uh, young mom or dad, uh, I don't give any reference without the consent of the person. Someone has to call him or her and uh, have to ask me to, to speak about him because just like you can't call your doctor and say I want to you know get a full medical report about this person or that person, you can't just do it. And uh, usually get upset uh, with me because I, I don't speak about it. But again, that's part of the, the old mentality or, or concept that we need reference checks because you know we need this person to be part of the network. Oh, this person lives in this village or this city or this town and I know their neighbors, I know their parents, I know their family. So a part of the good old days was that everyone needed to be connected to that web or that network. And this somehow comforted people that uh, they are okay and they are fit for their children. Unfortunately, this is not the case anymore. Um, in uh, parts of my uh, research, which, which I've done on cross-cultural marriages, and writing my dissertation, um, one of the couples who was of uh, like a North American descent, not necessarily a Middle Eastern descent, was a convert to the church. He said that this was probably one of the biggest challenges to him entering into the community or the public community because he did not belong to that network. And uh, the parents had no one to ask about and uh, to get this reference. And uh, it took them a really long time to kind of uh, accept him into uh, the family or accept the fact that he was dating their, their daughter. And uh, he said, or he commented about this concept of the network, meaning that he's not someone's cousin or someone's relative, in which case the parents could easily ask about his family line. So I think in, in our generation now, this, this um, is the, the first challenge that we have to think about concerning that person that I want to uh, connect with, uh, who is he or she, um, how are we to guarantee that they are a good person or uh, a rightful person for me. Uh, many of the ways that people used to connect in the past was 
um, through a middle person or someone who knew both parties or through a friend. Now also in, in my research, it shows that um, people are changing trends now. It used to be that people know each other, let's say, from church uh, or from the same community or through a, a mutual relative. Uh, but now with the explosion, of course, of uh, the new age and, and uh, people are not just meeting each other in the church, uh, but they are meeting each other at school, at work, um, over the web. Um, again, through mutual friends which are not necessarily uh, of Coptic descent, etc. And comes the question of, of compatibility. And um, apart also of my research and uh, go back to my dissertation if you want it's, it's online specifically concerning cross-cultural marriages and um, one of like all of the people uh, that I have interviewed said that being a Christian was uh, one of the non-negotiables but not necessarily of uh, Coptic Orthodox descent some of them some of the cops that I've interviewed uh, did get married in the Coptic Church uh, others found it a bit difficult to uh, connect with the Coptic community and thus left the Coptic Church, unfortunately, and this is like crossroads for every person because the Coptic Church only marries couples who are of the same ethnicity, sorry, of the same religion and of the same denomination. And that's why, thanks be to God, that uh, all throughout the West now, North America, and definitely is based uh, on the use of Israel leaders. This is, uh, we're starting now to see how we can uh, incorporate different uh, ethnicities and cultures into the Coptic Church and try really to understand uh, you know, what is essential for our faith and what is more culturally uh, based and this is still an ongoing initiative and we're paying more and more. So the first challenge that we have here again is the whole concept of, of traveling, choosing a partner for uh, that person who is going to be a fit, making sure that they are of the same faith or religion, which is more and more now becoming a challenge in our culture, especially in North America. Uh, but we insist as a Coptic community that even though a person might be of another ethnic background or denominational background, that they are still part of the Orthodox Church so that they can enjoy the rich faith and traditions. St. John Chrysostom has a beautiful saying that I actually quoted in my dissertation. He said, when your daughter is to be married, don't look for how much money a man has. Don't worry about his nationality or his family's social position. All these things are superfluous. Look instead for piety, gentleness, wisdom, and the fear of the Lord, if you want your daughter to be happy. So it's a beautiful quote from a great father lived in the fifth and sixth centuries. Uh, we're talking more than 1,500 years ago, and he had this mindset that the bottom line and, and the priorities, even though culturally this might be different, it's not necessarily the nationality or how much money this person has or position, but piety, righteousness, love of God, because this is how a person learns how to sacrifice for others. Our second challenge that we face today is education and career. Go back to the story of Isaac and Rebecca, verse 5, it says, And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? So 
I see this that inability to move and inability to to connect from city to city is an impact in today's culture of higher education and career choices. Um, there are more long distance relationships that are now arising and uh, we see people who are connecting together, not necessarily from the same city, not necessarily from the same country, but we see people connecting from all over the world. And then we uh, face that challenge, who's gonna move and uh, I'm comfortable where I am, I'm comfortable where I am, and I'm not very happy to say that most of the time uh, people end up moving to the south from the north and they say it's too cold in the north. <laughs> and, and not that I'm bitter about it, maybe a little bit about it because I lose a lot of my children. But, uh, I get to see them and they still stay in touch. But uh, more and more, um, the age for marriage now is um, like becoming later. Uh, due to education, due to, to career choices, people are extremely uh, busy building their career, and, and rightfully so. Um, and uh, people move for school, for, for college, for higher education, for postgraduate uh, studies, and that takes up a lot of time. And in the meantime, they are thinking, because they are being exposed to a lot of people, they are thinking about uh, mental compatibility, spiritual compatibility, uh, they are thinking about uh, finding someone uh, that they may uh, connect with. And uh, when we move away from our comfort zone, let's say the church where we were brought up and have always lived and uh, we're not as connected to the people there anymore uh, because all the people we grew up with probably moved away somewhere. And then because we're transit in so many different cities and people are moving all the time, we find that we're not really connecting with a specific congregation or making new friends and becomes more difficult because in our mind oh, all of these people have been friends forever and I'm just coming in and trying to penetrate this solid group and it's really difficult for people to integrate with them. So more and more today we see people who are very lost in the middle between their hometown and between the city where they studied or went to college and between where they end up finding a job and uh, this whole concept of uh, moving and, and connecting with people is another barrier sometimes for uh, starting a new relationship and uh, connecting with people that we, we do love. Um, there's also that pressure from the family and, and the community. And I can't tell you how many people uh, like really hate it when their parents come up to them or sometimes clergy <laughs> or sometimes friends and they say, you know, why aren't you married yet? Come on, how old are you again? And most of your friends are, are already in relationships and, and you're not. And there's so much social pressure on, on people today and it's like, like I'm trying, like it's not that I'm opposed to it, like it's just, you know, not just the idea of just getting married to the first guy or the first lady who knocked on the door. It's, it's a matter of finding the right person and, um, by the way, the pressure doesn't just end at marriage because once you're married and, and <laughs> we're the kids, it's been two years already, you know, is there anything wrong? Uh, you want us to you wanna see a doctor? <laughs> There's always like this word that annoys a lot of people. People hate to go to weddings because they always hear, oh bad, oh bad, oh bad. 
And it's like, there's always a hotel something, they're looking for something to happen, like, oh, that is shahad, and should be graduated, or about to get married, and then, but you have kids, and then, but the kids graduate, and then it's like, and then it's like, that's exciting, it's like, yeah, I get it already, it's fine, it's fine. We're praying for God's will, but no pressure. Unfortunately, some of the times, this ends up in people settling and making bad decisions for, for their future partner. But it's really important to understand that God has a plan and I have to be content with where I am now and then along that journey, along that way, God will show me His will. Then we continue with the story of uh, Isaac and Rebecca. We say, the Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying, to your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And here's the idea of divine intervention and discerning God's will. He will send his angel before you to find the right partner and spouse for my son. And it's uh, not an easy thing to, to discern God's will in our lives. And, uh, of course, when we speak about God's will, this is a topic on its own, but in summary, there are three levels of, of God's will. We have to understand that God has a universal will. A will for the world, a will for the vegetation and the creation, and there's so many verses that speak about that general God's will. But also, there's a will for a specific community, like for a church community or for a family. And then there's God's will for me personally, an individual will. The bottom line is that the scripture says that this is the will of God, your sanctification. So when we want to understand God's will, again, he will send his angel before it means that God would prepare the way. So what does that mean? Do I have to do anything or is it just God's revelation? No, we do our part. We have to do our part. And when we speak about um, Boaz and, and Ruth, we're going to speak a little bit more about that synergy and connection between my part and God's part. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, St. Paul here in Romans 12, 2, he points out for us that there are three levels of God's will. The good, the acceptable, and the perfect. The good means the fair or valuable or that of benefits. There are certain areas in my life when I need God's good will. But it also has to be acceptable. It has to be good, and it has to be acceptable for all parties. And acceptable means well-pleasing or agreeable. But we're ultimately seeking God's perfect will, which is complete, mature, and finished. It's almost like the three levels of uh, seeking and, and, and finding. Seek and, and knock and pursue. This is what God wants us you know, to, to connect with, to keep getting deeper into the knowledge of his will. And sometimes we ask, so what is God's will for my life? God's will is not specifically one thing, but it is a whole range of things that are a part of a path that God sets for us. 
This is the will of God, your sanctification. So I see the will of God as river banks. In the midst of these banks, the water can flow freely from one point to the other point. Limits and boundaries. Not necessarily one specific point, because sometimes you ask God, should I go to this school or to that school? Well, which school makes you more sanctified? And this is our point. Which school makes you more committed to the faith? Which partner in life is going to be of a better impact on you spiritually, but also in other areas of, of your life? So the will of God, again, is where the water flows freely. If the water gets beyond the banks, it creates a flood and a lot of damage. But as long as it's within these boundaries, then it is the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. So how do we discern God's will? Definitely spiritual maturity. Finding a good means to continue growing. Where I was when I was a child is not the same as when I'm youth or young adult or older in later parts of my life. I gain wisdom and I gain maturity. And I understand my freedom in Christ to choose the right decision, to make the right decision for my career and my future. But also very important to seek counsel. And uh, many of our fathers in the wilderness, they say that the person who is without counsel would fall like the autumn leaves. You know, in the change of season, you find all of these leaves falling from the trees. We will fall, and it's really important to commit to that spiritual walk of counseling, having a confession father, having a spiritual guide, and someone who can make me uh, or help me make the right decisions one day at a time. Because sometimes God's will is not revealed to us all at once, but it is revealed in different segments. Sometimes we're eager to know God's master plan for our entire lives, but God wants us to trust him each day at a time. And I want to make decisions, good decisions today, in every little circumstance, in every little encounter with someone else. And also I need to learn from my previous mistakes. And God is not going to judge us for our sins. He's going to judge us why we have not repented and returned truly to him. So it's really important to have the integrity to make a U-turn and to say I've done a mistake. We need to trust ultimately that God has our best interest in mind. For I know the thoughts that they think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. God is on our side. We are not his enemy and he's not our enemy. And when we partner with God, he reveals to us his will every single day. And I love this uh, little quote that says, I don't know what my future holds, but I know who holds my future. So the servant is being directed in a prayer by Abraham that he, God, would send his angel before him to guide him to the right person. Finding the one. Finding the one. And that reminds me of Frozen. <laughs> you know which song I'm thinking about? Which one? What if I find that one? Right? Finding the one. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day. And show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink. 
And she says, drink, and I will also give your candles a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. There's a big uh, difference between how people connected back in the days and how people do connect now. And uh, as you see the model here of Isaac finding a bride, the servant would go to the well and uh, he would randomly ask one of the people, of the ladies there at the well, to give him a drink and let him and all of the camels drink. And if she says, sure, I'll give you a drink and I'll let all your camels drink as much as they want, then she would be the one. And uh, things have drastically changed in, in terms of technology and, and social media. The challenge between then and now is that even though, like, I'm not even going to speak about, God knows, 2,000 years before Christ, the time of Abraham. I'm just going to speak about a generation ago, and uh, people got very much connected to, to each other. Uh, last night we were speaking about the love languages, and, and it seems that, okay, gifts are not important, and um, dowries are not important from today's ads, and all of these things. Um, but it seems what people are yearning for now is, is time. Face, like face, not FaceTime, but like... One-on-one <laughs> <laughs> like one, one, one time. People connecting together, not over a phone, and not over uh, any, any sorts of like uh, iPad or iPod or, sorry, or, or laptop. But quality time that people do spend together. Family time is very important generation ago. And it seems that now people may have a thousand different friends, quote unquote friends, on Facebook or, or different kinds of social media. Yet everyone is feeling extremely lonely. And everyone is feeling isolated because they don't have that special connection with, with a certain group of, of people. And uh, people more now are um, you know, trying to, to connect with, with different people, but uh, everyone is busy and everyone has their own life and work takes you from morning until 5, 6, 7 p.m., uh, 5 or 6, sometimes 7 days a week, and people don't have time to make that connection. And, and I find that this is one of the, the bigger challenges of, of our generation for people to kind of meet each other and, and be willing to sacrifice their valuable time um, to connect with, with one another. Um, and if you think it's, it's bad now, it's uh, going to get worse in the next generation. And uh, the next generation are going to uh, gonna look back in 20 years and say, oh, our parents used to FaceTime each other on the phone. They used to email each other and text message one another. <laughs> Have you heard of something called augmented reality that's coming in? Like, I'm not a technology person by any means, so I think we'll get to know that. But, um, but augmented reality is, is, you know, in production already. And, and these are, you know, you know how you have, uh, like, these goggles for, like, virtual reality? And people, like, shoot stuff and this and that. It's a game. It's a video game. So that's actually going to 
expand and, and become people's lives. Uh, augmented reality is that you can alter your perception of life. So we can be sitting in the same room, but people are going to be wearing these uh, goggles, and so there's going to be uh, these eyeglasses, and there's going to be contact lenses where people can just stick in their eyes. And basically, they could be seeing things that none of us is seeing. They could be in another completely virtual world, and they could <coughs> see different people there and connect with them and communicate with them. And they will be completely like out in the blue and uh, get angry with kids now who are just sitting there and texting each other. They could be sitting beside each other and texting one another and they're not even talking because they're losing their ability to communicate one on one and to have this relationship and, 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 a, and a conversation. And people are not having anything in common, so they just resort to hiding behind the screen. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges. And it's going to continue growing. And again, all of us, you know, go beyond behind the screen and, and do our thing. But we have to be very conscious about that quality time factor and, and finding time to connect with one another as, as humans. We cannot lose that because then we become just machines uh, who basically interact in data and it's all about business. And that's really important in a, in a Christian community that we have fellowship with one another. And uh, the early church accepted it. And this is how God added to the church those who are being saved every single day is that they had fellowship with one another. They had meals together. And they served together. They preached together. They were persecuted together. And they died together for the faith. And I know we can use technology for a lot of things. I'm not against technology. I think we have to be realistic. It's a great way to communicate together. But we cannot forget this human factor, human connection that has really been the foundation of any successful relationships in the past. Now, the story continues where the servant sees a beautiful young woman coming towards him and uh, he starts to explain who she is or what are some of the qualities that attracted him to. He says, now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin, no man had known her. Then she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So some of these qualities that we saw about her, that she was very beautiful, and also a virgin, and that she had not been married before or had any relationship with a man. The next challenge for our modern generation is the freedom and sexual liberation. Uh, you might know already that um, the uh, Center for Disease uh, Control and Prevention reports every day millions of sexually transmitted diseases, STDs, and uh, they say that they are on the rise According to the report from uh, this center, in 2017, a record breaking 2.3 million new cases of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis were reported. And a total now, throughout the years, uh, since they started calculating, it exceeds 120 million cases, only in, in America. 
The interesting thing is that California reports the highest uh, per capita ratio, but also California has the highest churches per capita ratios. I don't know how these two things correspond to one another. So I don't know, just, just some food for thought. Like, is the church now in North America is being really effective in its mission, or is it, you know, is, is the message being diluted? One time I was um, in a gathering at, at uh, the University of Toronto uh, of anyone who is a faith-based organization. So inside the university, you have all of these committees. Now we have like the Coptic Club on campus. So any of those clubs that have to do with any kind of belief system, whatever it is, um, they came together and uh, we had like a lunch. And uh, we were just about to, to, uh, to eat together because it's not only Christians or, or Muslims or, or Jews, but uh, people who believe in aliens. Uh, there are people who are like Wiccans, who believe in witchcraft and all of these things. And uh, so many other different beliefs. You know how it is now in North America. So uh, before we ate, we were supposed to give grace, right? And we usually give grace and, and pray. And of course, in such a gathering, you cannot pray to God. <laughs> <laughs> because who is God after all? Like he's just like praying, like being, or force, or spirit. So the person who was supposed to give grace they like, started off by saying, like, oh, great spirit who dwells in all the beings. Anyways, it was the funniest. <laughs> who exactly are we praying to for? Like, we're thankful for this. Anyhow, afterwards, we sat together to, to have a meal, and uh, I, I just wanted to meet different people just to, to get their perspective, to hear them out. Like, just to know where they're coming from, maybe I'm missing something. So I, I believe, you know, I sat with the people who believe that there are aliens out there and they're coming to take over the earth and we have to find a way to communicate with them. And it's nice because we're here beside the, the, the former space center. It's always reminded us of all the rockets going up to, to the sky. Very interesting conversation. Then I went to the weekends. So the weekends are very interesting. And there were a group of, of ladies. Uh, one of them used to be a Christian and then something happened at church was hurt. So started to seek in this, this Wiccan belief system. And one of the things that she actually said, I said, what is your creed? Like, what do you believe in? So she recited this uh, this creed, which is in, in old English, and uh, said that, and it harm none, do what you will. That's old fashioned language for as long as you aren't harming anyone, do as you wish. So there are no rules and no boundaries, no moral commitments, like some of the wicked creeds, they do spells against people and they believe in witchcrafts and, and all of these things. But the idea is that if you think it's okay to, and this is part of the, the postmodern world that we live in now, I'm going to talk more about it in a minute, where you're not necessarily bound to a specific moral conduct, but anything goes. We're living now more and more in a culture that devalues uh, celibacy, virginity, purity, and, and waiting for, for marriage. And even it makes fun of people who are celibate or, or pursuing uh, celibacy. And you have movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and all of these things which are um, satirical for, for wanting you know, to break their, their virginity or their celibacy. Um, 
Furthermore, there's an exposure, of course, of pornography. And uh, someone said that pornography is the devil's cocaine for the mind. This is a book called Christian Dating in a Godless World. Um, the Middle East, by the way, has the highest access to, to pornography per capita in the whole world. Because we, we look at certain cultures and we feel that these are the most conservative, but uh, because of so much oppression that people resort to, unfortunately, pornography, and it comes out in so many other violent means. Now, when we speak about that, our church is, is very big on, on purity and celibacy and waiting for marriage, but it's a challenge. We're not going to undermine it because, again, as we were saying earlier, because of furthering our education and career options, uh, people are getting late, married later on in life, but of course there's longer life expectancy, so <laughs> people got married at 15 and 17 and, and 20 and they live only to 45. <laughs> That's the part we always forget, right? <laughs> but now people are getting married later in life, but also God gives everyone long health and long life. Good health and long life can be living, you know, much longer until 80s and 90s, but God knows why. So, definitely, it's a challenge, and we have to commit by God's grace to pursue righteousness and purity, but also, we're going to talk about this in, in our next uh, session, God willing, never forget God's mercy and God's forgiveness, because even though we might have, you know, made some mistakes in the past, by God's grace, He renews our purity, and He renews us to return once more, and He will count those days as the, the times when we did not know anybody, or the times when we were not as spiritually committed to the, to the world. And he is able to renew our purity one more time. And all of us together, we need to commit to knowing that our inside appearance, meaning our commitment to God and our spiritual walk, is much more important than just merely what is outward. Our next challenge is culture of generosity. And again, uh, the story continues by saying, and when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your candles also, until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all of his candles. So he had 10 candles, and they've been traveling in the wilderness for God knows how long. And you can tell that they were extremely, extremely thirsty. And this generous woman didn't just say, okay, you can drink, or the candles can drink a little bit, and then you can come back later. But she committed to draw going back to the well so many times. Again, drawing water in the well is not something that's very simple and easy. So she went far and beyond her call of duty. And here, the next uh, challenge that we may face is cultural adaptation, understanding the culture that we live in. So for example, a Middle Eastern culture shows love by feeding you as much as they can in such a little time as as you can, right? So if you ever go and visit Egypt and you go visit a family member, they have to prepare this huge table filled with like food that would like, feed you for the next month, right? And you expect it to eat out of all of it. 
I um, when I was ordained uh, 19 years ago, and I was in the like in my 40 days in the monastery. I was taking a walk in San Bishoy's monastery in Egypt, and back in the day, I was like a thread, like like a spaghetti that was very tiny. And um, one of the monks saw me there. He said, "Father, come here." I see you're newly ordained. Of course, man. No, here, just like a few days. He said, yeah, I just got, got ordained last week. He says, you look really thin. I said, yeah, yeah, I said, thank God. He's a size and helps you. He said, okay, let me, let me show you something. So he took me and he said, well, you see the church over there? I said, yeah, I see the church. He said, what's on top of the church? I said, there's a dome. He said, what's on top of the dome? He said, I told him a cross. He said, now that you're wearing the cross, you need the dome underneath to support the He said, once you get back into your church, this is how they will evaluate you. As much as you go into people's home and as much as you're doing visits, you're going to be eating a lot, no time to exercise, and you're going to build and work on that dome. So I'll see you in a few years. And then we saw him again. But I think it's a little bit proof that I've been connecting and visiting with people. <laughs> and got a very comfortable dome to support my cross. So, if I go into like a Coptic family and, you know, like I'm just randomly coming and then all of a sudden you see this huge table filled with food and for the sake of St. Mary and for the sake of St. George and for the sake of St. Mina and all of the saints, like you have to eat and you have to eat and you have to eat. And if you don't do that, you have to understand the culture, you have to adapt to that culture. Because, okay, I already had like three dinners already and I can't, no, I want to be so insulted. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> In a North American culture, it's different. Okay, I mean, you don't have to have a meal like every time you can you come, you know, you have coffee or water. And, but if I go to a Coptic family, I say, just, you know, do you want to drink or eat? And it's, uh, want some water. He said, water? Why? We're, we're not that stingy. Like, that's nothing to do with being stingy. It's just like I can. So again, as our community grows and, uh, and flourishes in uh, North America, it's really important to understand that the land and its norms, how to deal with people. And, and this is one of the challenges for, for new relationships is the whole idea, let's say, uh, someone who's a new immigrant versus someone who uh, has lived or was born in North America, it takes some time to speak the same language. And it's not only that, that spoken language, the English language, but the expressions and what we mean, not everything is like literal. Uh, the customs of the people, what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. I remember someone told me once, there was, uh, I'm not picking on you, but I laugh at myself as much as, as everyone else, because I'm an immigrant at the end of the day. So. But uh, you know this immigrant who came in and like to North America, they were fascinated to see all these beautiful women, and uh, he's used to like sexual harassment. Is Egypt is number one in the world again? Like at least they're number one in something. But sexual harassment and women, but there's a lot of these things. I'm not I'm not picking on anyone, but this guy was used to like uh, acknowledging uh, women, and he came in and then he looked at her. Beautiful woman, he started whistling at her. That's what they did. He looked at her and she called the police, and he, all of a sudden he's, he's charged with sexual harassment. Like, what just happened? I'm just trying to acknowledge. 
But, but it's, it's important to adapt. I mean, for us as North Americans, let's say if we go to the Middle East or to the Far East or China, we also have to respect that culture. That's really important that, uh, you know, when we speak about some languages and we speak also about like different norms for every culture, I'll be offending someone else, let's say, um, if I'm going in a very poor area, let's say in Egypt, and I'm wearing my jeans, I'm wearing, you know, uh, low-cut shirts, or, uh, you know, these things, or not covering my hair, these things are uh, provocative, and they're insulting to people. So, again, just like people have to adapt to North American culture, we have to adapt to them as well. What are the norms, what are the boundaries? How do you greet people? What do you say to people? Again, with all the uh, latest movements that are around us, if someone wants to be in a functional and healthy relationship, we have to understand these cultural norms and adapt to them as much as possible. I'm not speaking about faith now or religion, speaking about traditions and customs and making an effort to relate to people in the way that they understand. We're coming close to the end, so please hang in there. Are you still okay? You're with me? Okay, we're almost there. I'm gonna ask you about all seven of them at the end, so see which, which ones you remember. And you can cheat from that, it's okay. Then the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth towards my master. As for me being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. When uh, the servant has found me from Rebecca, and uh, she agreed to move back with him and, 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 and to marry uh, Isaac, the first thing that, that the servant did is that he bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And the challenge that uh, we have in, in our generation, living now in a time called postmodernism, I'm sure you've heard this uh, phrase evolved in uh, different ways and times, but people don't necessarily acknowledge God for stuff that happens in, in our generation. It's just not part of our language. Like, um, let's say in, in our Coptic heritage, most of the time when we, when we say something is going to happen, we say, God willing. Except our children don't understand God willing, they say God willing means no. Right? <laughs> when the parent speaks to the kids, it's like, yeah, we're gonna do it to God willing. We say, does that mean no? <laughs> Are we gonna do it or aren't we gonna do it? Yeah, God willing, we're gonna do it, but like, just tell me yes or no. <laughs> like, like, shoo, shoo, shoo. <laughs> when someone sneezes, you know, we used to say, like, bless you or God bless you. Like, now this is me, like, what? Why? <laughs> <laughs> Why when I sneeze? I don't understand. <laughs> the biggest blessing I ever received, when I, one time I was giving a sermon in the church, and there were 500 people there, and just happened that that one day, something, I don't know, the AC was just pointing at the something, and then, like right in the middle of my sermon, I said, it was like, God bless you. I said, <laughs> 500 blessings all the time. You should try it one time and see it. <laughs> so, what is postmodernism, anyways? Uh, they define it as relativism. No absolute truth. Anything, everything 
and laughing at the same time. It's just a mood, basically. If I feel like it, then it's right, it's true. And if it's true for you, it doesn't have to be true for everyone else. So there's no collective truth in our generation now. People could believe what they want, do what they want, and you know, there are really no boundaries. It could be being right today and wrong tomorrow, it could be wrong today and, and right tomorrow. Another definition was that postmodernism requires a suspicion of the overarching stories, often called meta-narratives, that support our claims of truth. <clears throat> any claim to know truth or any attempt to commend truth to others is likely to be just a power play. They argue and attempt to impose one's own meta-narrative in the guise of an absolute truth. So those who uh, say that in the, the past, people used to have collective truth. Like we all agree that there is a God. We all agree and believe in the Holy Trinity. We all agree and believe that Jesus is the current word of God. This doesn't exist anymore. Like you can believe it, just don't impose your beliefs on me. I can believe whatever I want. Just don't preach at me and don't tell me what to do, what's right and what's wrong. I'm free to believe whatever I want. So we see in that challenge today that we need to turn these challenges into, into opportunities. And um, there's a real need now to make a conscious effort to understand North American cultures and embrace its positives. If we are going to nourish or flourish uh, good habits, good relationships in the next generation, in this generation, we need to be, to feel comfortable at home, right here in North America, not feel always that you know, our home is somewhere else. We need to, to adapt to, to the good habits. And there are a lot of great things that people desire to be in North America. Like go to any part of the world and they say, America is paradise, let's make America great again, and all these <laughs> slogans, crazy things that you have here. Not American, so I don't know. <laughs> we need to go back to, to the roots of our values and beliefs. And uh, living in a postmodern world today is really confusing because we're being bombarded with a lot of information back and forth. But we have to find out and go back to our core roots and core beliefs as a church community, as, as faithful believers, to see what is right for us because. I cannot meet someone if I'm not confident in who I am. I cannot share that with someone else unless I'm really happy with, with where God is calling me to be. So that person that I'm meeting is not gonna change my identity in Christ or my belief system. And that's really important at this stage in our life to go back to that core beliefs and take that time to really dig deeper into our beliefs. We need to incorporate God into every decision that which will help crystallize my direction in life. And being true to the covenant in all of my choices, especially about finding a life partner. And here, um, let me just go back very quickly to the seven challenges that we might face in our generation based on that story of Isaac and Rebecca. Let's uh, make sure that these walls are not barriers. These challenges are hindrances for us to be in a healthy relationship that honors God. Yes, challenges do exist. And we won't grow unless we know how to conquer these challenges and turn them into opportunities. 
about the network, yes, some of the, uh, the relationships <coughs> with people that we can check or ask about, but sometimes these persons might not be from the network, and then what it is, what, what should we do? It's really important to be patient. It doesn't mean that we should say no completely, but to reevaluate that person and take our time to make sure that they are willing to adapt to our fundamental beliefs. And uh, probably there are a lot of great people wherever we live, whether they are in the church or other communities where we might exist. But the main thing is to network towards God. And we have a common goal in our relationship because someone is completely godless, no matter how much they say, I want to really commit to the faith. It's not impossible, but let's say it's, it's, uh, it's not probable that they can be at the same level of commitment to God and set your priorities straight because this person is going to be the father of your children, going to be the mother of your children. So that choice needs to be made with a lot of discernment and a lot of counseling, as we mentioned. Education and, and career, yes, it is a challenge, but also God can send the right person in the right time. We cannot be always close-minded to say, you know, when this happens or when that happens. If God sends the right person to me, I'm open to explore uh, the probabilities or, or possibilities of pursuing a godly relationship with them. Discerning God's will is something that I have to take day by day. And again, we mentioned that God may reveal His big plan to us, but most probably God just reveals to us the next step. And then the next time, the next step. And then one step at a time. Because sometimes we sit there and we start daydreaming about the future and this and that and kids and a dog and a cat and a backyard and a barbecue and I go into all these daily living details but I just pray to God just show me your will for today and for tomorrow and he will take care of the rest. Technology spoke about yes it's very important but at the same time very essential to establish this face-to-face -face relationships with people that we love. Freedom and sexual liberation we said that God is calling us for wholeness, but even if we've made mistakes in the past, God is willing to take us in, forgive us, and to give us a new start. Cultural adaptation, again, understanding that this is our home now. We need to be comfortable right here, right now, in order to uh, build healthy relationships. Postmodernism, we live in the world, but we are called to a higher living. May God bless us to truly um, conquer these challenges turn them to opportunities and make us a godly generation that honors him in all of our relationships and glory be to God forever. Especially ladies, they start getting uh, in their minds or the family and the pressure as we said as women that uh, they get here, they get older. So what they start to do is to start to put their bars down a little bit, and out that I got some girls that they said they need the church to get somebody from outside the church. They said, there's nothing else. I need to get married. And I really uh, have no choice. And they start to go to the other side because of the pressure. And uh, that's what we have. What do you think about that? Uh, 
had with him some of uh, his uh, beloved bishops. Amongst them was Bishop Musa, the bishop of Koyun. And Bishop Musa was recalling a story that happened during this visit. He said that uh, he's always visited one of the churches. And then uh, they asked him to have a youth meeting with Bishop Yusuf because he was the bishop of youth. So he said, okay, the youth can come down to the fellowship hall and I'll meet with you. So uh, the people that came down were eight young ladies, young adults, or women, and a child was seven years old. <laughs> seven years old. And then one of the, uh, this is Amba Muslim was recalling this story, and then the whole discussion about relationships and marriage um, started in this group, and all the ladies were saying, you know, in our church, this is what we have. So you have eight, eight young ladies and then a child, seven years old. So even if we wait for him 15 years, <laughs> who's going to marry him? <laughs> and uh, in all honesty, that's the challenge, in, in not just in North America, it's all over the world now, like for people to, write, to find the right match um, of who to marry. And that's why, like in my, in my opinion, in my perspective, uh, we have to widen our, our search a little bit because some of the congregations, you have 20 families, 30 families, 50 families, and even in bigger churches that have 500 families or 1,000 families, also you can never find the exact match. Like people are not just desperate want to get married, you want to get married to the right person because this is the most important decision in life, like a career you can change, uh, a house you can sell it and buy another house. But when it comes to marriage, like you have expectations, like you have the mindset, especially in the Orthodox Church, that this is going to be a lifetime commitment. So, in my opinion, there is no problem to widen our 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 search because it's not always possible to find the right match in in, in our congregation or nearby congregations. Uh, I mean, if we find it, that's great, but if you don't find it, you know, we have colleagues at work or people that uh, we see in social functions, but there should be a priority in our mind about living a godly life. So it's not just finding someone who is nice and kind. There's a lot of people who are nice, quote unquote, nice, right? But they're not godly, and, and that should be the cutoff where my priority is to live a life of holiness. I want to give my children what my parents gave to me in terms of faith. And for us, faith is the most important thing, like our church and faith, most important in life because it's been passed down through martyrdom and bloodshed. And the faith that was once and for all passed down to the saints too. If I, and this unbroken chain for so many generations, I can come and all of a sudden break it. And this is what some people don't understand, especially living in a postmodern world again. A generation ago, faith and conduct was about us as a community. We belong to church, we belong to history, we have history, we have common ancestors, and we have things that unite us together, like martyrdom and, and all the things that we're very proud of now. What postmodernism has done is that it's, it's isolated every person. Like, like if you have a, like a branch of, of like vines and, and grapes 
Okay, and you have all of them in the same area. Imagine taking just one of those grapes and isolating it, and then the grape says, I'm the most important part of all of this. Right? The rest of it doesn't matter. But the way we view it is that we are part of this vine. What gives us our strength is being collective presence and, and collective history, etc. So what you see now is that people are isolated. They don't really belong anywhere. They don't care to belong to a faith, to a religion, to maybe they belong to an ideology or something that is virtual. So that person who is coming into my family, we have to be patient. We have to make sure that they will accept the faith. There is no compromise when it comes to faith. And as much as they can, uh, over time, you know, they can grow into that faith at their own pace. But what Father Ilaya is saying, some people are just giving up. They're settling. They're lowering the bar or the standards. And guess what? Who's, who's going to pay at the end of the day? It's these people who make bad decisions. Because you might be infatuated today with the whole idea of a ring and a dress and planning for a wedding and this and that, just to get it on social media, right? <laughs> go like this. <laughs> <laughs> and then you wake up the next day and you're living in misery. How many of you know people, unfortunately, though I don't say this with like pride or, or joy, but how many of you know people who got divorced shortly after they got married? Like, let's say within five years. How many of you know this? Yeah, I see, I see the majority of us. The majority of us know someone who rushed, didn't do their calculation. They knew that there were problems from before, and yet they insisted, and guess what happened? And there are many more who are just hanging in there, and they're living in, in misery. They're not happy. And they're trying to make it, you know, one day at a time. Then the kids are involved. And Think about the kids, like as a divorce, they have court cases, oh my goodness, like this. So please make good decisions and get counsel. And uh, patience is, is a virtue. I know sometimes we're, we're eager and we're thinking, and, but th this is one decision you can rush in. Do you have a question? Um, so, Abuna, you said something about the one, yeah. and I, I kind of don't agree with the idea of the one. Yeah. So, um, I don't, I don't know. Maybe you can, you can explain it a little bit further, because yeah. I, I don't feel like God necessarily has one person decided for us. Um, I was just referring to, to Anna's song, what if I meet someone? Oh, what if I meet that one? No, but, uh, I agree with you. I agree with you um, that, again, God's will is not specifically towards someone, but he gives us a whole range of criteria. And these are our priorities when we're looking for someone or, or, or that one. Like when I say that one, doesn't mean that this is that one appointed by God, but I'm saying that this is that one that God led me towards, like the person. If you don't want to use that one, just use the person. It's okay. <laughs> so I, I agree with you. Another question? Yeah, I have Please. a question. I can hear you. We can hear you. Um, I just um, was wondering about the statistics about cross-cultural marriages. Um, how many, what is the divorce rate of these? 
So the divorce rate in North America now is, is about 50%. Okay? <coughs> in general. Yeah, yeah not, not with Coptic families. No, I'm, I'm asking saying. about the Coptic, like the Coptic and So non there are no, there are no uh, statistics, statistics that uh, have, have taken into account uh, like a, a qualitative research. What would we say? Uh, sorry, uh, quantitative. So, so quantity and quality. So I've done my, my research is quantitative. It's, uh, I, did, quality. I did qualitative. I did qualitative, which means you take a smaller sample and you interview them, you know, one on one, and you take your time in the interview. And, uh, the quantitative no. research is when you take a whole sample, which is hundreds, or probably thousands, and then you start to take like uh, surveys, surveys of, on numbers and averages and, and all of these things, which is another kind of research, I guess. But I don't know how much time we have. Maybe after the breaks you don't think, but uh, I don't think the, the failure, no matter, like well, even one divorce is, is considered a failure, in my opinion. It means that something went wrong. Like, because we can't, we can't always judge based on numbers and ratios and all of these things. But the idea here was that um, there are many stereotypes about cross-cultural marriages that they're always bound to fail. And this is what I was, was after to know, is this real or not? Like, is this true that most cross-cultural marriages fail? The other question that is asking, like, what's the difference between cross-cultural marriages and, and same-cultural marriages? Because also we see divorce in, in same-cultural marriages. So what, what are the reasons that same-cultural marriages also fail in, in North America, right? And then the third question was, what led to, to the failures, okay? And the fourth question would be, how do we improve the quality of cross-cultural marriages? This was the premise of my my study, and uh, you can access my, my dissertation online. It's very easy. It's called "Of All Nations: Exploring Intercultural Marriages uh, in the GTA, which is the Greater Toronto Area, the, the, the place that I focus on." I think the link is on, on the app. Yeah, you can find the link on, on the on app. The, app. It's very easy. the premise of it, or just the big summary, okay? After three years of research, basically, summarize it in two minutes is to say that for any marriage, not just cross-culture, but specifically for cross-culture, because there's lots of challenges, there has to be the work of three factors or three entities together. Number one, the couple themselves have to put extra effort to ensure that they're compatible and uh, they understand exactly what's the meaning of marriage, what they're getting themselves in. Secondly, the family and friends have to embrace this relationship and ensure that they feel a sense of belonging. And again, that whole concept of the network, uh, it's very difficult for any new person to penetrate this network, and it takes them time uh, to be part of that network. But once you're in, you're, you're in, and people are comfortable around you. But, you know, just to make sure that they're in, and they're being treated fairly, and, and not being judged for any reason, so the family and them. And then, the, the third, and I think in my, opinion, the most important entity that needs to work uh, on its policies and its views is the, the church. And the church combines the clergy, how we view these marriages, how we treat them, 
Do these marriages have a chance to flourish in our churches? How are they being treated by the congregation? And many people who are not of Coptic or ethnic uh, background, you know, um, who came into the church, they faced a lot of persecution and wrongdoings and accusations and uh, being outcasts. And you can read all about it, all the quotes that they have. So we need, as a church, to change our perspective. And to change the way that we welcome and treat others. Language is a big part of it. I was happy to see the very first thing we saw here. Please try to communicate in English because it makes everyone feel welcome. Because if we're not speaking English. But one of the concerns I have, it says they kept, someone said Ashbib Ikram is like nothing except English. Like, can we speak Coptic here or is it illegal? <laughs> <laughs> it said only English, so I guess not Coptic. Because anyone can speak but so, so in, in summary, which is a long, a long uh, thing, is that if we have these three entities working together, I think there's a big chance and a great chance for cross-cultural marriages. And it's part to, to flourish, and it's part of our future. We cannot neglect it, and we cannot deny it as much as we want. It's part of, of our future. But was the stereotype right or wrong? Sorry? Was the stereotype right or wrong? That's, that's the question. So it's case by case. Like, I can't say that all Americans are this, or all Egyptians are that, or all Chinese are this. Like, I think we're living in a generation that we're a bit more sophisticated, that a bit more intelligent to assume that everyone is just the same. Because, let's say, an, 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 like an Asian person who has been born or, or living in North America, they're going to be more North American than they are Asian. Like, they may look from outside that they're Asian, or, or Mexican, or but really, when you, you speak with them, they have exact same values like, like anyone else who's been living in, in North America. So I think it's a bit naive to say that the stereotypes are right or wrong. I think it's more now case by case. And also, the spouse who's, let's say, a new immigrant to, to North America, they're coming with these values. If they're going to fail in the relationship with, that's my opinion, a Mexican or uh, Chinese or a white Caucasian, they might as well also fail in the relationship with a cop who has been born and raised in North America. Yes. I don't think there's a big difference between the same because you reflect the values of the land that, that you live in. So the more we're able to treat people with dignity and respect, regardless of their ethnicity or, or, or their background, there's a better chance for this relationship to grow and, and to flourish. Let's let's stop. The statistical there's conversions of the fittest, and that applies to traits. So if you say there's no statistical significance to uh, cross-cultural marriages, I I don't see how 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 that is so. But that's going to be a longer conversation. So we're yeah, have we can we can carry yeah. the conversation uh, afterwards just to respect everyone's time. Please. But I think the thing that Bruno was saying that's actually very very good is that. It's if we don't accept and love people as the body of Christ in the church, you know, if someone's struggling, regardless of what they are, what ethnicity, what background, what family, what like whatever they come from, if they don't have that support in the church, yeah. they're bound to fail if they're Coptic or if they're not Coptic, if they're any other ethnicity. So it's the kind of thing we can't not love people because they're different. So it's the kind of thing I love that you said that because it really puts the onus on us. Yeah. As a community to be there and share love and support. 
sometimes we operate out of something that I, I, I coined or I called the, the culture of fear. Fear of the other. And when I stereotype someone, as soon as I see someone, let's say, some members of our congregation are, uh, by the way, our congregation has about 52 different ethnicities or nationalities, so from all six continents around the world. And thank God everyone is cherished and loved and respected for who they are. But uh, I heard uh, there was a couple who were getting to know each other. They are, one, one of them was, uh, let's say the female was Canadian and she was studying in the US here. And uh, she was introduced to someone who's African. And then she said, let me take him to, to church to, to just get to know our church, right? So in, in her mind, she wants him to eventually be part of the church. So the very first impression, they say, can't have a second chance for a first impression, right? So that person just went into the church and, and immediately one of, of the deacons ran to him. And he said, the first question he asked him, he said, what are you doing here? <laughs> Like without any introduction, without like, what are you doing here? Like what kind, like imagine, imagine you at a party or at a friend's house or in a, uh, I don't know, wherever you are, social gathering, and then someone comes up to you out of nowhere, okay, and says, what are you doing here? What are you going to answer back? Are they going to be rude to them? Or you're just going to walk away, right? It's an insult. And then that you can continue by, by saying, this is not your church, right? So, you know, and he asked him to leave, basically. Just asked him to leave. So he left and he never, he never went back, right? After, after he, uh, like, like he came back to Canada and, and he came with that lady, a young lady told me about that interaction. I said, just bring him to church and then let's talk and call him back. They say, it's not as bad as it sounds. Probably things were happening at the church. And, but there's a stereotype, there's a perception. Like, okay, this, you know, this, we're living in Iran and they're trying to snatch away our ladies and this and that. And, and as soon as I see someone who's like, of, you know, was uh, white Caucasian or, you know, or South American or African-American or this already like an alarm that kind of, you know, with, with people like this is our safe area, you know, you can't come into it. And again, it goes back to that whole concept of, of the network. And we have done a lot of injustices to a lot of people who belong to this land. And let me be honest with you, let's say for a church and then someone was another ethnicity comes into the church. The first thing that people say Oh, there is a foreigner in our church. Foreigner. We call them foreigners, right? But who's the real foreigner? Is it the immigrant or are the people who have lived here for many generations? Like, we are the foreigners, not them. And, and subconsciously, we try to protect ourselves by isolating ourselves from the outside culture because we feel it's safe. This is how it was in Egypt. You know, we have Islamic invasion around us and we need to protect our faith and they are there and we are here and so it's it's still work in progress by the way work in progress and this is common with every first immigrant generation like the asian immigrant generation are facing the exact same or have faced the exact same thing the um, european immigrants face the same thing uh, the, 
the South American uh, immigrants face the same thing. So I don't want to just pinpoint at the Coptic community and say, you know, where there's a, no, it's, it's a struggle that everyone faces, but we have to deal with our own insecurities and come face to face with reality and ask the tough questions. And if we're doing something wrong, we have to admit and correct. And this is part of our growth as a community. We see the uh, story about Rebecca and Lazarus and how rigid the choice was. He's the man with the muscle and he's expecting the women to fill all of the things and feed all of them and water all the cows and they can store water in their hump and everything else. It was very rigid, rigid choice, uh, test. And I think we do the same thing right now. And I think there is a rigidness in our faith and our church, and we don't accept that our brothers, uh, Catholics or Protestants and sisters in our churches, we don't acknowledge their marriage. And if uh, one person was a Catholic, for example, I have the story from one of my friends, their son wanted to get married to a Catholic uh, uh, girl, and the church refused unless she get baptized. And he never came back to the church. He went and got married there. And she was really believing in the Catholic faith, and uh, she was willing to go and attend the Catholic church and be part of it, but she didn't want, she believed that she had that time. And I think the rigidness, I think we need to deal with. Um, thank you for this uh, great question. Um, I want to say that the way that God created the human body is a good representation of the balance between rules and spirit, or letter and spirit. So my analogy for that is that the whole body, for the whole body to stand, we have the skeleton, the bones. And the bones are rigid, but it is what keeps us from not being like jello, you know, like it's, it's what gives us our identity or our posture. So it's important for the church to set rules and guidelines, being directed by the Holy Spirit, by the scriptures, by the early church fathers, and by the current uh, hierarchy of the church who set for us these values. But at the same time, the body is not only bones. If it was only skeleton, then we'd be living in like Halloween, right? <laughs> like a Halloween problem. But the body is covered, and God has covered our, our bones with flesh and veins, blood, and nerves to make us look the way that we do. And these represent the, the spirit. As, as Christ said that the spirit is important along with, with the letter. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But he didn't deny the need for, for the letter. But he said, mercy and justice together. Rules and understanding of the rules and flexibility are very important as a combination together. Because if we take all of our decisions based on emotion, oh, I feel bad for them, and things like that, then we won't have our identity. 
one of our fathers, the bishops, looked at me once and said, I would never put you on a committee that grants permission to remarry because you will give you will give permission to everyone who applies because you feel bad for them. That's my lousy personality, but I know that this is true. Like because I'm more emotionally connected if someone that comes to me and feel bad for them, I said, okay. <laughs> I don't really cry, but like, this is how I how I feel. Like I'm more like emotionally connected. But thank God for other people who understand the 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 need for, for the rules and for the guidelines. So I think it's the combination of these two together, like the bones as well as the nerves and the skin and the veins that, that give us life. I think both of them together are important for the future existence of our church. His Grace Bishop Musa uh, coined a beautiful term. He said, strong flexibility. Strong flexibility, you know, a rubber band. Like you have the band and you can make it flexible a bit. So it's important for us to understand the rules and the guidelines, and then from there we try to deal one-on-one -on -one with the needs of people. And I can tell you that our church has come a long way since it was 20, 30, 50 years ago. And the way we are today is very different. And the church is trying to adapt, but we cannot at the same time lose our identity. When it comes to uh, denominations and, and baptism and all, all these things, I think this is further discussion that we can have a conversation. If it's okay, I want you to take a break because you're falling out of the chair <laughs> and uh, we can come back for, for our second session. Depends on our time.